Welcome to the Let's Talk EMDR podcast brought to you by the EMDR International Association, or EMDRIA. I am your host, Kim Howard. In this episode, we are talking with EMDR certified therapist, consultant, and trainer, Anne Beckley Forrest, about EMDR therapy in children. Anne is located in Buffalo, New York. Let's get started. Today, we are speaking with EMDR certified therapist, consultant, and trainer, Anne Beckley Forrest, about EMDR therapy in children. Thank you, Anne, for being here today. We are so happy that you said yes. Well, thank you for inviting me. Very exciting. And tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming an EMDR therapist. I was thinking about that when I was getting ready to chat with you, because really I didn't come to EMDR until, you know, kind of mid-career. So I had already been a play therapist for a long time and a play therapy trainer. And I was actually a reluctant student of EMDR. My agency asked that I was working for at the time, asked me to go. And I was like, oh, you know, it's that just a thing where you're waving your hands in front of somebody. <laughs> um, but I'm not I, sure if it works or not. Well, right. I mean, actually, by then, I think if I had been paying close attention, I think the data was already in. So that was about 12 years ago. And actually, I was trained and I was one of those annoying students that kept asking the trainer who was Annie Monaco, who is now my collaborator on a lot of trainings and projects and stuff. But she was my EMDR instructor and she loves to tell the story about how annoying I was. And I would be like, this is boring. <laughs> I don't really see how we're going to get children to do this, you know? So that was the beginning. And I was working in a general setting though. So I didn't have nearly as good a model for adults. And so I began using EMDR with all my adult clients. And then of course, looking for ways to integrate it with children. And that's kind of where I really sort of got going in terms of my own thinking about, about integration, about getting out of the silos, because there is really a lot of therapists treating traumatized children who do not know EMDR. Right. And don't really see clearly how, you know, based on, you know, at least what's on the outside of the package, how would they integrate that into the work that they're already doing with children? So that's where that's where the excitement is for me right now. Got it. I think that a healthy dose of skepticism in life in general is a good thing. And I especially believe a healthy dose of skepticism is health is good when you are working in any kind of field that impacts somebody else, you know, and my goodness, being a therapist certainly does impact someone else. And so I, I don't see anything wrong with somebody looking at, you know, some new idea and going, hmm, is that really legitimate? Do I really want to do that? Do I really want to integrate that into my practice? And how do I make that happen? So I don't see anything wrong with that. And you are one of those people that you're probably a lot like me. You've got questions when you go to sessions or seminars or conferences, and that's how people learn and grow. Because if you have that question, somebody else in that class certainly has that same question. And so you just got to answer, ask it before, you know, they could. And so I, you know, when I go to those things, I'm like, oh, should I raise my hand? I'm like, oh, I can't be the only one ask, thinking about this, wondering about this question. Let me just put it out there. So it's not a bad thing. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I also think that now that I'm a consultant and also I, I do some advanced trainings, I also do basic training with Annie Monaco through the Child Trauma Institute. So now that I have, you know, my hands in a lot of different levels of EMDR, you know, development out there. I meet lots of people who say the same thing. They're like, I'm curious about it and I'm interested in the evidence, but I can't see how it would work with my clients. Right. Um, and in particular, for those of us who work with children and adolescents, 
therapy in general can be kind of tricky without <laughs> population because they're not wired the same way as adults are. And yet I am passionate now about getting child therapists trained in EMDR because yeah. really for this reason, kids heading into adolescence with unprocessed trauma is a disaster. So, you know, now that I've sort of figured out, at least for myself and in, you know, consultation with other people, how to try to make EMDR accessible for the younger kids, we don't want to wait until they can sit, you know, properly on the edge of the couch and do the standard protocol. Right. You know, we want to get to them young because then we prevent so many of the kind of trauma-related problems of adolescence and young adulthood. So Yeah, I can see that. I can see why. I mean, I would I would presume it's more difficult when the children are younger, but you're right, letting it stay inside their person and grow and fester as they get older, you know, and then becoming I remember when that study came out and my my children were older teenagers, I believe, when it came out. They're now 25 and 22. And the study came out and it basically said that the teenage brain doesn't mature until the age of 25. Right. And I looked at them and I thought, oh my God, that is so on point because like they, they can be so good and so smart about so many things. And then they can just do something so dumb. And you're like, oh, that must be the undeveloped part of your brain. You know, that decision-making part where you're not making the right decisions all the time. And so I'm like, yep, that, that seems about right. So well, one of the narratives that I would love to challenge is this idea that it's harder to do trauma work with kids. I mean, it certainly requires different kind of preparation on the part of the therapist. And, and it's personally very challenging and even painful to be the person who's asking a child to revisit the worst days of their lives, right? Right. There's something in our bones that just resists that. Yes. And we really have to overwhelm that with evidence, with data, with clinical experience that like, oh, look how much better kids do afterwards. But the actual doing of EMDR with kids doesn't have to be harder. And that, so that's really, that's, you know, one of the things that I love talking and and chatting about, which I was so excited to get your invitation. Yeah. I like, I would like to challenge my EMDR colleagues to sort of get out of that mindset that this is going to be too hard to do with kids. Because what we know, at least anecdotally, is that a little bit of EMDR goes a long way in the child's nervous system because everything's so elastic, still growing. Those neural networks are still making linkages. Yes you know, to use kind of Francine's verbiage, if we can clear away those blockages, those memory nodes, traumatic memories, and allow adaptive information to flow, right? That's AIP. Who is doing more learning than kids? Yes, this is very true. And they they yeah. seem to be, at least with my children, my experience was, at least physically, they're extremely resilient, right? So everybody in the house gets sick, but the kids are always the first ones to recover, right? And so I would also presume, and, and this may be partially true, that if you're doing any kind of mental health work with them, that they will recover quickly and be able to implement what they're learning because their brains are just like a sponge at that point. And so they're soaking up all that information rather than, you know, as an adult, when you try to try to process things. So right, well, you know, as adults, we have sort of habits of mind or rigidities that are much harder to challenge um, yeah. once they get entrenched. The other thing about younger kids, especially, is that they have care, they have parents or caregivers, and they may be imperfect caregivers, but they still are more likely to accept nurturing and attachment and grounding and support from them than, you know, as you get into adolescence, that's not really developmentally 
where kids are at, you know, to kind of accept the reassurance of adults. So if we're doing trauma work with younger kids and we can find ways to harness the caregiving system as a resource or even as part of processing, then it's just much more powerful. And we don't, and the, and the risks are lower also of opening yeah. those doors. So, yeah. so for all those reasons, challenge the idea that it's harder. Um, I remember when my kids were teenagers living in the house. I mean, to be honest, there were times I don't even think they wanted to be in the same room as we did, as us, yeah. you know, so much less us telling them something, right? Anything, because nothing we, nothing we told them was ever correct or ever right. And we didn't know what we were talking about, right? Because all adults are stupid, especially your parents. But when you're younger, you sort of look up to them, you know, your parents or your caregivers, and you think, oh, they're, they're so smart. They know what they're talking about. So I, I, I get what you're saying about working with children versus it's a little bit more difficult working with teenagers because there, there's a little bit of mistrust in the in a teen in an adolescent's brain when it comes to adults and what they're saying to them. So, yeah, and they need yeah. that in order to separate. Otherwise, nobody would ever leave home, right? That's but, true. Yeah. That's true. We don't want fa- we don't want a whole generation of failure to launch kids. So no, that's right. <laughs> so, Anne, can you tell us uh, what's your favorite part of working with EMDR and children? So I would say the idea that we can be very physical with the, you know, kind of channel this physicality that children have as their kind of native, natural way of being and use that to do, you know, increase dual attention for bilateral stimulation. It's in a way, you know, it's almost easier to get kids to you know, once they once they sort of understand what it is we're up to, it's easier to move kids through some of the processing because they want to be up out of their seats. You know, and I use a lot of drumming. I use, you know, I have kids kind of doing like a pool noodle sword fight. You can't see, I know it's just audio, but I'm waving my arms back and forth. Um, (laughs) There's just a real physicality that I think is an enhancement to EMDR. And I actually think even in adult EMDR, all over the EMDR world, we are all about somatic, somatic interweaves, somatic resourcing, integrating with, you know, some of the more body focused, you know, therapies in order to enhance the power of EMDR, especially for folks with very complex histories. And with kids, that is sort of our natural way of being with them anyway. And that's where I kind of lean on my heritage as a play therapist that, you know, we always were kind of up out of the seats, not doing pencil and paper, you know, worksheety kind of therapy, but more acting stuff out, more right. dramatic and all that. And so thinking about how that really makes it possible to get to those memory networks with EMDR, that to me, that's the that's magic sauce. That's what I love. Magic sauce. I like that. So you may have already touched on this, but in case you want to add anything to it, what successes have you seen using EMDR therapy with children? Many. I would say that, you know, especially helping caregivers, you know, like most child therapists, I have an uneasy relationship with the idea of how am I going to involve parents? (laughs) Because parents are complicated, right? Often parents are a factor in their own child's trauma, whether they're the cause or they, you know, the, you know, the important things that didn't happen to quote Shirley Jean Schmidt, right? The attachment wounding as well as on the other end of the spectrum, the parents whose need to to over-soothe has shut down 
the kind of organic processing that could have taken place. And so I think about, I worked with a lot of kids with medical trauma, early chronic pain, early in life, surgeries, premature birth, all of those kinds of things. And then one of the things that happens a lot of times in, in some of those family systems is really an invalidation of the child's mm. experience so that the child is left to bear alone some of the fear or that, you know, and it's like, be nice, behave for the doctors, you know, don't cry. It's going to be fine. All of those. And we, you know, as parents, a lot of times these are well-intentioned caregivers who nevertheless misattune those messages. And then what happens is you have a child who's got unprocessed trauma or who's maybe using dissociation or other strategies in order to manage what's what they haven't had support with. So finding ways to help caregivers repair as a part of the processing, I think is probably some of the most rewarding experiences. I mean, yes, also having kids, you know, have experiences in processing where they feel more empowered and, you know, mobilized as opposed to frozen or, you know, victimized that too, but really figuring out how to reattach, help help kids to reattach to caregivers. You know, I just think that's very powerful. And, you know, I think it's taken in part, you have to be a pretty strong leader to have the whole family system in the room. Oh, yeah, I bet. And that's where I think the devil's in the details, right? Like, it can definitely go off the rails, too. But when it works, it's good. Yeah, I feel like becoming a parent is one of the major life events that, quite frankly, nobody trained you for. Right. You are not prepared. You don't have to go to class. You don't have to get a certificate. You don't have to go. Nothing. You know, you just simply have to procreate and then all of a sudden, or you, you can adopt. And then all of a sudden you've, you've got this new life that you're responsible for. And you, you can only base your parenting skills mostly or mainly on what you see other people do. Maybe what you experienced in your family and you decide to follow that path or go against it if it was a negative experience and you came from a home that was not healthy. And so, you know, you've got the most important job you ever have and you just hope you don't screw it up. <laughs> you know, so I would imagine, you know, being in a room with not just the child who's in therapy, but with the parents or any other siblings that might be involved is trying to manage that dynamic is, is a handful, I would suspect. So, yeah, but you know, when, when we're able to, that's it. I really am curious now and more and more where I see my kind of growing edge as a therapist is being more creative about how I how I get even parents that maybe before I would have been, oh, I don't know, this parent's going to be too triggered or, you know, because a lot of times the child's trauma is also the parent's trauma. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, I'm I'm actually an adoptive parent myself. My kids are all older, like young adult. But I rec- I totally recognize that from from that end of it, that, you know, we are we're involved as our children are in a kind of avoidance pattern. Right. Which is. Yeah. TSD, right? And it's contagious. So that, you know, as the, you know, the child's nervous system is organized around avoiding reminders of the trauma, then the, the family system is often organized around that as well. And we end up with kids where they're getting treatment, but it's all behavioral focused. It's not, you know, quite often therapists who work with children are not really tapping into the role that trauma has played in getting to where we are and, you know, are just so caught up in trying to help the parents manage day to day. Right. You know, take the time to do this other work, which I think is very fruitful. So. And what myths would you like to bust about EMDR therapy in children? Oh, well, that's a great question. I love that question. (laughs) 
Well, I mean, I would say the biggest one is that I hear over and over again is people saying, is it okay to dot, dot, dot. In other right. words, I think, you know, our emphasis in EMDR training is on model fidelity. And that, you know, there's good reason for that, right? Because we're, first of all, as you, you know, said at the beginning, we're sort of traipsing around in another person's nervous system and life right. and emotions. And so we need to have, you know, full humility in that. And we need to follow the paths that have been laid before us and, and all that. But the problem is, is I think then child therapists try to take that piece of paper that they got in basic training and read it to a six-year-old and it, it doesn't work because now my therapist is not attuned to me. Usually we play, usually we move around the room and now they're worried about getting these words exactly right. And they're asking me, what does that make me believe about myself? Which is a question I don't have developmental tools to answer. Yeah. I don't think a six-year-old can answer that. Yeah. (laughs) You know, yeah. People will be like, well, is it okay if I don't ask that question, what will happen? It's the protocol, right? And so I think looking for developmentally sensitive ways to accomplish all of the pieces of the protocol. So that in that sense, yes, model fidelity, but feeling kind of permission that as a child therapist, we have to prioritize attunement and flexibility within that. One of the problems is there isn't really enough research on clinical strategies. We do have research that establishes that children respond to EMDR positively. But what we don't have a lot of is we don't have a lot of research that says, you know, do it this way versus that way. Right. But what you end up with is therapists who are a little bit frozen, who, you know, maybe with all great intention, they go and get trained in EMDR, and then they just are kind of paralyzed in terms of how to implement it. I think this idea that we there's some like sort of EMDR you know, permission grantor out there that's going to say, yes, move <laughs> while you do the protocol. Yes. If you and tra- waved tra- her wand and said, yes, go well, make it so. Exactly. People come to my training and I go, is it okay if I do this? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> so we talk about it a little bit, but, you know, obviously we need to have good case formulation, good clinical rationale for the choices that we do make in terms of adaptation. But the hallmark of an integrative model is flexibility. And I think we need to be integrative when it comes to children in order to do our best works. We've talked about this on the podcast before about how being in a a mental health profession, being a therapist is, is science and art blended together, right? There's science to back up what you're doing that says, hey, when we do these things, it treats the patient in a good way and the patient has a good positive wholesome, healthy outcome. But then there's this whole art part of it that says, I got to figure out as a therapist, what's going to work with this client and what's not going to work. And so you're right. You, the, the term when you use the term flexible, you have to be a little flexible. You have to be able to be like, here's your rigidity and, and here's the protocols that you would follow and, or here's the treatment option you would use. But then you have to be flexible within what you're doing because if it's working, then it's working. But if it's not working, you have to go back to the drawing board and figure out why and Well, and especially because uh, I believe that a little bit of EMDR is better than no EMDR. And imperfect EMDR is probably better than no EMDR for kids because exposure work by itself is really the key, you know, and you have a, in a small child's nervous system, even getting a little bit of exposure to the, you know, the bad thing that happened 
with right away that adaptive information is available that I'm in the room now and it's over, right? Mm-hmm. right. That a little bit, even if we do three sets, four sets on the target is better than not doing any at all. And of course that bothers people because we want, we love the predictability of the protocol as it was, as it's laid out, right? As right. It's supposed to go, you know, with the zeros and the sevens and that, you know, we love how <laughs> clear that all is. And with kids, we're rarely getting the, the data in real time like that. But we can, you know, one of the things that I learned from Annie Monica, who we were talking about at the beginning, who taught me EMDR is that reevaluation phase with kids. It's not about me asking the kid so much as it's about me talking to caregivers about what they're seeing. You know, the evidence is in their lives, in their daily lives versus trying to get a kid to rate their level of disturbance is is kind of a dicey business. So, yeah, you've already answered this question a little bit, but in case you want to add on, are there any specific complexities or difficulties with using EMDR therapy for this population? So talking about, you know, their own sense of what's how to describe your own distress. Children just don't have the capacity for that. It's interesting that they can often kind of more act it out or show it in different ways. And in in a sense, that's part of what I'm trying to do when I, you know, think about how can I integrate EMDR processing into what might be already going on in the room, Um, you know, because I have like kind of a standard play therapy space where I see kids and that offers a lot of opportunities for like projection and creativity and kids kind of like to run with that. And then what I'm looking for when processing is on the menu is opportunities to kind of organically get into that because I don't think if I sit them down and go, wait a minute, stop playing. Now let's talk about these things. It just doesn't doesn't work so well, huh? No, they just don't think that was fun. And, and, you know, part of it, I don't think it's necessarily resistance. I think it's really, that's not the level at which kids connect. So if I'm, you know, if I've brought up a target and I'm trying to do a little bit of processing with a kid and they get up and, you know, start grabbing dinosaurs and making them roar and become, you know, very kind of big muscle, dramatic play in that moment. That's, you know, that's what's coming up. It's a way of saying, I have big feelings right now connected right. to this, even though this kid can't say, I'm feeling a little bit distressed, right? Yeah. Right. So, so figuring out how to recognize that, I think that's, that's challenging and it takes, you know, trial and error um, sometimes to do that. And then also trying to find a way to do the cognitive, the cognition stuff because kids don't have that kind of meta thinking about themselves. And yet we don't want to not, you know follow those channels either. So I think that's the other part that's, that is challenging, but intriguing, you know, if, if you're able to kind of follow some of that around. Yeah. I would, I would think it's difficult a lot of times for most adults to articulate what they're feeling beyond certain normal words, right? Regular words, you know, sometimes the words have to be beyond I'm happy or I'm sad or I'm angry. They need, sometimes you need a more detailed description of what you're feeling. And sometimes adults can't even come up with that, much less a a child. So, you know, it's good that you are telling people who are interested in child therapy to to pick up on their clues when they're playing and what they're doing and notice what they're doing and notice that, no pun intended. Um, But um, yeah. It's it's interesting because we talk about like the portals of learning, right? If you're, you know, and uh, um, a lot of therapy is really based on this kind of verbal auditory. EMDR is innovative in that it added this visual 
piece where you have the client like go inside and, you know, bring up an image that was like revolutionary. If you think about it, that, that now we've added another dimension to that. And so for kids though, it's, they're not so good at that all the time. So that's where it's that, you know, they talk about in learning theory, it's the tactile and the kinesthetic, right? So it's having things to touch and hold and also doing all of this while moving the body that really seems to help kids with integration. Also the little ones. So that's kind of my favorite population is like 10 and under. So especially for them. How do you practice cultural humility as an EMDR therapist? Well, I think the first step is to practice humility as a human, right? And humility in terms of our clients' experiences, that's a starting point. Um, Then it's to do with culture and all the aspects of who they are as people. So I've been really interested in, I went to a workshop, Mark Nickerson, who wrote, you know, kind of wrote the book on in mm-hmm. the EPR world, right? One of the things that I got from one of his workshops, and then I kind of followed down the rabbit hole is this idea of confirmation bias. So that, you know, we sort of see what we're anticipating that we'll see. We have an innate desire to categorize each other. And that what it really takes to be, you know, truly humble is to that part of myself that wants to create a category or a box or a think I know what someone else's experience is because it's just like these other experiences, right? That that I have to, you know, kind of say to that part of myself, go sit down for a second and just wait. Partly about pacing and patience, I think. You know, obviously we want to be overtly welcoming, you know, all of the things, but that goes, I mean, hopefully that goes without saying, I know maybe it doesn't in every setting. But, you know, I think as as a trauma therapy community, we're trying to be very intentional about that. But I'm more curious about that kind of next level humility, which is really about how do I conduct myself in the presence of other humans? And, and so that to me, that idea of confirmation bias and the role that it plays in, in how, how we miss a tune and we miss the mark and we rush to judgment and all of those plays ways, I think is really important. So good point. Thank you. And do you have a favorite free EMDR related resource that you would suggest either for the public or other EMDR therapists? Mm, well, this is not as I didn't do my homework. Let me think about this for a second. <laughs> so many things in life are not free. They're actually, actually, I do. I really have appreciated what Emdria has been, you know, not just making a pitch since it's their podcast, but um, there is now free some child resources for free on what? Um, so that was cool. When I discovered that, I tell all my EMDR classes about that now. There are some, an EMDR learning community that does a lot of free content around children. I don't know if you know about that. So that's um, Rodem Brayer and he has Jackie Flynn, who's kind of a colleague and friend of mine. There are some things that they do that are paid for sure, but this particular EMDR learning community, they have a monthly, like, I don't know what to, it's not a Lunch training. and learn or something. Yeah, it's not really yeah. a training. It's like everybody hop in to the community and then they have different guests. And it's so it's not a CE event. It's just like, let's chat or tell some stories. And, you know, they've had a lot of, I've done it. And they have on this month coming up, they have Ana Gomez is coming on to talk about right. her work and stuff like well, that. Well, if you shoot me the link, I will add it in the description of the podcast. Yeah, um, I'll take a look. When I set everything up and then people can access it and go check it out. 
There's one other thing that I that I would mention, and this is not to plug my website, but this is something that I we put on our website because of how important it is for EMDR with children, which is I have a very short, it's a 30-minute course on how to use uh, Joan Lovett's storytelling method. So the storytelling method, Joan Lovett is a, is a very early, for people who don't know child EMDR, she's a very early proponent of using EMDR with children, kind of back in the early Francine days, she created a protocol or an approach, which is where the parent tells the story of the trauma. So the parents literally sets up the target in the form of a story. And then the therapist does the bilateral or the other parent. And then often that's a springboard then for things to come up. And it's, you know, a titrated approach in the story. There might just be one kind of slice of the trauma in the context of like, you were born beautiful and amazing, and now you're getting bigger and stronger every day. But in the middle, <laughs> that happened. And so I that is such an important process to be aware of for anybody who's going to do EMDR with kids that I do have a little free thing on my website. And it's behind, a, you have to sign up only because it's only accessible to EMDR clinicians. You have to state that you're an EMDR clinician in order to get to it. But sure. Okay. That's playfullyemdr.com is our website that Annie Monaco and I have. So we will include that link as well That's in the description. Great. My approach to this is, I mean, yeah, we are Emdria and yes, this is our podcast. Yes, we do have good information on our website for people, but if there are other sources out there that are legitimate and educational and accurate, we don't have any problem sharing that information so that people can be can be educated. You know, this is our goal is not to try to monopolize the community. Our goal is just to spread the word. Well, and there really would be no way to because things are have kind of exploded for yeah. for EMDR therapy, right? And you yeah. can even if you just scroll through Emdria's training calendar now, it's an explosion of trainings on how to use EMDR in conjunction with other therapies for all ages. Yep. You know, certainly there's an explosion of EMDR with kids right now. And and there's a lot of play therapists learning EMDR, which I feel some pride in. Yeah. I've been trying to get them to pay attention to what's going on on the, on the EMDR side of the fence. And that's very exciting. So there are certainly many, many, many things out there right now. And it's a, there's a lot going on. That's good. What would you like people outside of the EMDR community to know about EMDR therapy with children? I think the same things that we want all you know people to know about EMDR with all ages, which is that it seems backwards, but in fact, if we can do the opposite of our instinct to avoid these tough feelings and instead move towards them and through them with support, we heal. Really, our clients heal themselves. Just the bravery of doing that, and we're just facilitating that. So um, it just is counter to what our neurons are telling us to do, and that's what makes it a tough sell sometimes. I don't know. I grew up in an Italian family. We kind of like confrontation, <laughs> and I use that as a joke. You know, I don't mean literally like no, horrible, right. negative confrontation, but we, you know, I grew up in a family where you know you just put it out there on the table and you discuss it, and then you just move on, right? You bring it up, you talk about it come to some, some kind of resolution and you move on. But there are some families where they don't talk about anything that, you know, might be serious to talk about and, and yeah, they don't have those hard conversations. And so I, I, yeah. I do, nobody likes it. I mean, even the, right. even people who like who grew up in a family like mine, we don't necessarily like it. We just know that it's sometimes it's just part of the process. You know, sometimes well, you and, just and have to have when even in a family, like, yeah, even in a family, sorry, even in a family like that, like, yeah. 
where the free, you know, there's a, a freeze response or there's a, you know, sometimes things overwhelm even our organic capacity to digest. Right. And then, you know, that's where it's really becomes helpful to have someone, you know, lead, lead the way through that. So absolutely. If you weren't an EMDR therapist, what would you be? I already, I know the answer. Wow. That's funny. Besides <laughs> being a play therapist, which is what I was before. No, I would be, I would be a uh, work in hospitality. Oh, doing I what? When I started doing trainings, the, how much I love, well, first of all, I always love travel, but I really love like the making of the training space. And even like, you know, what are we going to eat during? <laughs> so you would be like in meeting planning. Yeah, right. That's what they do. Some of my best friends are meeting planners. Well, it's just the idea that you want to kind of facilitate like the building of a, you know, a temporary community. What a training is, is a temporary learning community. Um, So that is probably something personally that I found very rewarding during this particular stage for my career where I've sort of turned a little bit from all the time, like doing the work to trying to tell other people about the work. I've noticed how much I like the hospitality part of that. So I could totally, I could like run a really fancy hotel in this preferably a warmer climate than Buffalo, New York. Where I yeah, currently. preferably. Yeah. Feet of snow every winter, not really inducive to inviting. Out of town uh, visitors? Area. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, We're aware. Um, yeah, it's funny. We have great summers though. I will say that. That is true. That is true. The summers there are good. Many years ago, I, my husband and I lived, uh, used to live in Maryland and we lived outside of Annapolis and I told him I wanted to run a bed and breakfast. I love to cook and I love to cook breakfast is like a really great meal to me. That's easy to cook in the morning and get it going and get it started. And then I started reading articles actually pretty recently within the last couple of years about people are, people who own bed and breakfasts. They're like, this is really what goes on behind the scenes, right? This is what you think happens. This is what really happens. And I'm like, oh, thank God I never did that. That sounds horrible because basically you're just doing housework all day long, right? It's not about making the breakfast and chatting with your guests. That's only a small, small part of it. It's about changing the bed sheets and dusting and vacuuming. And well, you can outsource that stuff, Kim. You have I'm to. like, oh, that sounds like a horrible existence. <laughs> I have no interest in doing that whatsoever. So glad I never went down that, hey, sweetheart, let's get a house and have a bed and breakfast route. So. That would not have been for me. Actually, there's a house in my neighborhood for sale right now. And I keep telling my husband, let's buy it. And (laughs) that's good. Thank you for the cautionary tale. I appreciate that. (laughs) Is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, I'm just really excited that about the topic. I'm very appreciative that Emdria is prioritizing trying to kind of meet the need for child therapists, you know, to kind of grow our numbers and to, you know, look with intention at conference topics and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I think that's so important. The institutional support is very important. I think it's it's coming along. And then the other, what we need now is we need researchers. Um, there's just ch- researching children's really hard in North America. It, there's added layers because of like IRB review processes and things like that. The upshot is there's hardly any current research going on on children, EMDR with children in the U.S. We do have some stuff coming out of Europe and the developing world, but we just need more. I want someone to, you know, study how we're doing EMDR right now with, you know, kind of more robust integration of play or this more physical, like, you know, is drumming as good as eye movements for children? But we don't have comparative research. So until then, we kind of guess based on clinical experience. So always put the call out 
get some more enthusiastic young researchers involved in the next generation. Yeah, I interviewed uh, Jason Linder a few podcasts ago about EMDR therapy with couples. And he was basically saying the same thing. He said there's really not a whole lot of information out there, studies done about EMDR therapy in couples, and there needs to be more research. So, Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the first wave research of EMDR was really establishing efficacy. Right. Um, And I think that we've done that. So So now let's talk about how it works with different populations and different issues. And and comparing this strategy to this strategy. Like that's the next, kind of the next level stuff. So I'm excited to see where where we go with all of that. Absolutely. Well, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. This has been the Let's Talk EMDR podcast with our guest, Ann Beckley Forrest. Visit www.emdria.org for more information about EMDR therapy or to use our Find an EMDR Therapist directory, more than 14,000 therapists available. Our award-winning blog, Focal Point, offers information on EMDR and is an open resource. Thank you for listening.